turn with me to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 4 and starting in verse 9. First Thessalonians 4, 9. And you know, there once was two brothers. There were two brothers who hated each other. Uh, brotherly love was not known among them. Uh, it was absent in this family. And there was good reason for it, because father loved one son especially, and made it well known in the family that he was the favored son. And mother loved another son especially, and she made it known in the family that she had her favored son. And a rivalry was born. Who would really be the well-loved and favored child of this family? Who would inherit all that the family had? Well, each parent took it into their own hands to secure the blessing for their particular chosen son. They were willfully ignorant of God's plan. They were willfully ignoring of God's plan. They were willing to use deception and every evil means to accomplish what they desired for their son. And a further schism developed between these two brothers and what sprang from it. Well, we could look to, for instance, if you haven't figured it out by now, I'm talking about Jacob and Esau. Right? If you know the story of, and really I should say Esau and Jacob, because Esau is the older brother, but we also know the promise that God gave was to Jacob. And what happened after all this back and forth and jostling by the parents to secure for their son the blessing? Genesis twenty-seven forty-one. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Right, so the result of the scheming, the backhanded, the, the, the backroom tent deals, because they didn't have a house, so, you know, it was tents, uh, that all of that was hatred. And it took many, many years, but eventually there was a kindness and a brotherly love between these two. Uh, Genesis 33, 4 tells us that, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, that is Jacob, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. So there is a time when they are restored unto one another, reconciled unto one another. There's a brotherly love that begins to form between them. But it took many years, and it was hatred for so long. Our passage today in the book of 1 Thessalonians deals with this issue of brotherly love. How we walk before our fellow believers and a watching world. And so today what I want us to see is that the Christian life is loving believers and quiet working in the world. So let's turn to our passage and see that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no, no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And this is the word of the Lord. 
So remember that Paul's kind of shifted subjects in this letter. In the first three chapters, we have this uh, encouraging word to the church, right? He, where he's praising God for him, thanking God for them, for their faith, for their for their work, for their love that they've evidenced in not just in their city of Thessalonica, but even in the region and in the further in the broader church. And so Paul wrote of his love for them, right? And he says again and again, I, I love you guys. I, I long for you. I long to be with you. I want to see you face to face. But they've been hindered and separated for one, from one another. And then at the outset of chapter 4, he begins giving some instruction. And, he, and so the letter shifts, right? It turns more to instruction. And uh, he says in, for instance, chapter 4, verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And that pleasing walk, he goes on to explain, uh, is God's will for them, right? God, God's will is their sanctification. And then he gives some specific instruction about what that sanctification looks like, the abstaining from sexual immorality. And now he continues this discussion of that, but about what that pleasing walk looks like by talking about that love that we ought and must have for one another who are in Christ. So we see first a loving walk. In verses 9 to 10, a loving walk. He begins and he says concerning brotherly love. And so what kind of love is this? This is a brotherly love. Uh, it is Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? I don't know that if you went to Philadelphia, you would actually find that to be true. Uh, but you could try, maybe do an experiment, have a fun vacation, summer vacation there one week, uh, and see how many people cuss you out. You know, that, that would be a way to gauge that maybe. But it's this, it's a brotherly love. It's Philadelphia. It's phileo, the, the love between family members. And this is the usage of the word outside of the Bible. So when you look at Greek writers and Jewish writers, uh, they use the word Phileo for brotherly love, and that is familial love. So it's a, a love that should be between families, uh, family members. And how do we love one another within a family? Well, we seek their best, right? We help them. If they need something, we help them uh, do that. If they need aid, we come to their help. Uh, we seek their best. We inconvenience ourselves for the sake of our brother or our sister. And especially in the culture in Jesus' time, in Paul's time when he's writing here, sibling relationships actually come first. So they have a culture where sibling relationships are are a higher priority than even spousal relationships. So if you if your sibling uh called you up like they do, you know, like they did back in the day of Paul, right? They tweeted them or something, you know. Um maybe with a bird, I guess. Pigeon, pigeon carrier. Uh, but, but if they, if they, if a sibling went and said, brother, sister, I need you, that brother or sister would even put, set their spouse to the side and say, okay, sorry, sorry, honey, I gotta go and take care and help my brother. That was the level of sibling relationship. The sibling relationship was predominant even over the spousal relationship. And what Paul is talking about here then, as he says, now concerning brotherly love, he's not talking about blood family relationship. He's talking about, he's not talking about, right, 
blood brothers, but blood-bought brothers. So a blood-bought family. We're talking about here in the term, when we see the term brotherly love in the scripture, what we're talking about is the church, the love that should be among the members of the church. We're talking about the love between the family of God. We could, for instance, look to Mark chapter 3, 31 through 35, and Mark 3, 31. And his mother, that is Jesus' mother, and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And again, the cultural expectation in this moment is, Jesus, your family is calling you. You're in a room of a bunch of strangers. Stop what you're doing and go attend to your family. That's the cultural expectation. What does Jesus do? It says in verse 34, or finishing verse 33 there. And he answered them. So Jesus answers the crowd. Who are my mother and my brothers? Did Jesus have a like a moment of a lapse of forgetfulness? No. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And what Jesus is doing, right? what Jesus says there, for us who are in Christ, he says something very controversial in his day, and I would dare say even controversial in our own day, in our very independent culture here in America. He says that blood family relationships are no longer the priority if you are a follower of Christ. He says blood-bought family relationships are the priority. The context of meaning then, what Paul is talking about here to the church in Thessalonica is this. Love your fellow believer. And he says concerning this love, what does he say there? He says concerning this love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. I don't even really need to write to you. I don't really need to write to you to instruct you to love your brother in Christ, to love your sister in Christ. The Thessalonians were well instructed in it because they've been taught by God, right? He says that at the end of verse 9, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. They've been taught by God. The Holy Spirit himself creates in a believer this desire to love. First John 4, 7 to 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The implication there is, right, if we know God, if we believe in God, if we trust in God, if we trust in Christ, we will love. If you understand who God is, if you understand who Christ is and what Christ has done for you, you will love. You have to. And in reality, it's not a grudging have to. It's something that wells up inside of us and spills out of us. We can't help but to love. Because of God's great love for us. That's the reason, by the way, why we forgive, right? When, why we forgive others who have uh, sinned against us. Because we realize, we understand 
that the sins that we have committed against God are so much greater than the petty things that people do to us. And I know I say that. And if you, if you think of some of the abuses that can happen, you would say, that's not a petty sin that's been committed. It is in comparison to what you have committed against God. And so we forgive. If we understand what we've been forgiven, we forgive others quickly. And if we understand the love with which we have been loved, we want to love others as well. If we understand that we have been bought by Christ's blood and adopted into God's family, and that those who are also in Christ are also part of the same family, we'll want to love them too. It's challenging sometimes, right? Not saying it's easy. But this is the call. This is what we are commanded to do. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need to anyone to write to you. You yourselves are taught by God. He continues in verse 10. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Right? They, they have evidenced their love for others. Paul already said this in uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, right? labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Labor of love. They've worked out love. Not just in their own little congregation, not just in their own little area, not just in their own little city, but throughout the whole region of Macedonia, the whole region that they lived, they loved their fellow Christians and not just the Christians in their own hometown, not just the Christians who looked like them, talked like them, had the same dialect as them. And this is a real challenge for us because we so often are concerned only with our little fiefdom. We fail to consider the love that we must show to the broader body of Christ. Are you concerned for the welfare of fellow believers outside of the community that you are in? Do you pray for those worshipers of God who gather in other cities, in counties, in countries? That's why we pray for, for instance, the persecuted church. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who need God's grace to withstand in the evil day. And do we care about them enough to take the time out of our day to lift them up to God in prayer? And listen, this is a strange and wonderful thing about who you are in Christ. If indeed you are in Christ, you are connected to people who are far removed from this area. But how important is brotherly love? Well, we see here, what does Paul say in in verse 10? But we urge you, brothers, to do this less and less. That's not what he says, right? He doesn't say, "Don't, don't, don't be so worried about that. No, he says, do it more and more. Do this more and more. It's reminiscent of what I read in uh, verse 1 of this chapter, right? As you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Continue on in it. Continue to grow in it. He exhorts and urges them, do it more. Further brotherly love. Continue to be about it. 
Because the scripture is clear about our calling to love. We could, for instance, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Our classic wedding passage that's not a wedding passage, but it's an important passage on this issue of love, uh, our issue of what we do as a church. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If we have not love, we are nothing. If Redeeming Grace Fellowship does not have love, we are nothing. We can have the best preaching and teaching and music and programs and ministries and mission work, but if we have not love, we are just noise in a noisy world. How important is brotherly love? We could consider Jesus' words in John 13, 34-35. I like going here. You'll hear it a lot because it's such a, a monumental command for us. John 13, 34-35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Jesus commands us to have love for one another, radical love for one another. Because what does he say there? He doesn't just say, have the love between siblings, but have the love with which I have loved you. And how did Christ love us? How important is brotherly love? We could look at 1 John 4, 20-21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If we say we love God, we have to, we must love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is essential for the Christian. Fun Latin phrase there for you, sin qua non, essential. We have to have it. How then do we love our brother? How do we practice this? We see it, Paul urges us, he says, do so more and more. You've been taught by God, but but how do we practice it? Well, the situation dictates, the, the circumstance dictates. It may mean, sometimes what it may mean is stepping in the gap when someone has a physical need, when they need Food or clothing or shelter, we meet that need. Again, First John tells us that. If anyone has his world's goods and sees his brother in needs and closes his heart to him, that's not love. And indeed, question if you're even a believer. That's the strength of what John says in First John 4. The situation dictates. Here's one, though. Sometimes brotherly love is confronting someone with their sin and calling them unto reconciliation, to repentance. There are those who would say that that is the definition of being unloving. That to call someone to to repent of their sin is unloving. But if you understand what sin is, what it does, that the wages of sin 
are death. And that's not just hyperbole, right? That's not Paul in the book of Romans there saying, uh, exaggerating about the, the effect of sin, that we really understand that sin is deadly. How can you not lovingly confront someone and call them to repent? And this is something that, again, we as a church have to take with all due seriousness. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says that there are those who have a good outward showing of faith. They act religious, but they are really workers of lawlessness. Those who love their sin and will die in their sin. Those who love lawlessness will suffer the judgment of the lawless one, even if they act religious. So that's what it concerns us as a church. It should concern us as a church. And here's the thing. I need this. I need to be exhorted and admonished because sin and Satan deceive. That's what they do. Satan is the father of lies, after all. So brotherly love is sometimes doing the difficult thing. The the thing that we would rather not. But for the sake of the brother, for the sake of the church, we must. Brotherly love, though, also entails the positive of encouragement. So I don't want to just be negative and say we have to be about all the the negative things of the confrontation and the harsh words. I'm not saying that. Because brotherly love is also encouraging. Let us stir one another up to love and to good works. Let us remind ourselves that we live and breathe and move, not by our own power, but by the grace of God. Let us speak kind goodly words to one another words that give grace ephesians 4:29 let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give that it may give grace to those who hear that's the command to you that's brotherly love words that build up and give grace brothers and sisters in christ you stand today by God's grace, you can stand and face and defeat the temptations before you because God is with you. He has given you his Holy Spirit that you may put to death the deeds of the flesh, even those deeds which you have long fought against and long failed in. He has promised your good. And that doesn't mean that you'll never have calamity or hardship in your life. But he has promised your good. You can rest assured that everything that God allows into your life is for your good. It is conforming you to the image of his son. It is for your good and his glory. And he will keep all of his promises, including your eternal life, when you stand before him in the glories of heaven, and you will live before him forever. He will be your God, and you will be his people. Encourage one another with these things. And indeed, we'll see that in the next portion of the passage uh, of chapter 4, when he 
when Christ will return and call all of his people to his side forever. When Christ will be with us forever. And there will never again be a veil or separation between us and God. And we will see Christ face to face. Encourage one another with these words. So how else do we show brotherly love? We, we have a loving walk. That's what we're called to. And we're also called to a quiet walk. A quiet walk in verses 11 through 12. And he says, and he continues, right? And to aspire to live quietly. And this aspire is this, make, make your ambition in life this end. It's kind of like what he's saying, make your ambition unambition. Make your ambition quiet. Brotherly love is a quiet life. And there's some question exactly as to what Paul is dealing with here. Uh, some commentators suggest that maybe he's talking about political quietness. And if you remember the context in Acts 17, there is political unrest in the city because uh, of what the, the message of the gospel, right? Because people are believing and the, the whole kind of city is stirred up against the Christians. So it could be he's talking about some kind of political quietness, um, but probably not. It doesn't seem a very strong, uh, strong reasoning behind that. Uh, it probably is more something likely that which we see in Second Thessalonians. And so this is what I would say out of Second Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. It says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, he, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So there seems to be, if we take what Paul says there in Second Thessalonians and we take what he says here, that this to aspire to live quietly is an aspiration, a, a ambition to not being a busy body, to not being someone who is disruptive and divisive in the church and in the community. There are people that we may know that their MO, right, what they do is disruption and division. Everywhere they go, they sow discord, right? There are just some people who are that way. We need only look at social media, right? We see that all the time. Well, what is the purpose of so much news programming is to create disruption and division uh, so that way you're agitated enough to go and vote for a specific party or to further some political cause. Right. So even there we see that that's common in our culture. But for us who are in Christ, we are to aspire. We are to make it our ambition in life to live quietly and to mind our own affairs. Paul is writing here, it seems, warning against that idleness that again leads to disruption and division, especially within the church. The disruption and division that unsettles faith and hope. And especially if we look to what he begins to talk about with the coming of the Lord, that there are those who have taught or who suggest that maybe they would miss out on Christ's return or Christ has already returned or so many other issues going on, that it unsettles people's faith, right? It creates disruption and division and it 
hampers the work of God, right? It hampers the work of the church. It hampers the furthering of the kingdom. And this does not mean, however, right, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs. This does not mean that we are not interested in one another's lives. It does not mean that we ignore what is going on in the lives of our fellow believers. We are to live life together. And indeed, if that's what Paul was saying here, then it would make nonsense of what he says elsewhere. For instance, in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or how about what he says to the Philippian church in Philippians 2, 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what seems to be in view here, again, it's not a disinterestedness in what is going on in the lives of our fellow believers. No, we're supposed to be interested. We're supposed to be interested in in it. But what seems to be in view is this idleness in the world that, again, divides, distracts, disrupts. And it could well be that Paul is writing this, knowing in his mind that there are some people specifically within the church that are causing this, that are causing strife. And to them, he says, live quietly. Make it your ambition to live quietly. You don't have to stand up and disrupt and divide every time the church gets together. Don't be busybodies, right? There's a difference between being interested in for the good of someone else uh, to being a busybody, nosy and, and putting in, uh, getting too deep into uh, such things. And then he continues. So live quietly. Make it your ambition to aspire to it, to live quietly. Do you aspire to live quietly? Is it your ambition to live quietly? That's not exactly, again, a goal of our culture. Uh, the aspiration of our culture is, right, live loud. Make yourself well known. Make sure other people know that you are around. Shout it from the rooftops. Post it on the TikToks. Which I know sounds like an awfully old-fashioned way to say that, so sorry, I am old. Uh, live quietly. Mind your own affairs. And work with your hands, as we instructed you. Work with your hands. Again, he's already given himself and the other missionaries as an example of this in 1 Thessalonians 2.9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. To the Ephesian church, he says in Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You have a responsibility to be busy about work. You were not created for idleness. You were created for work. Work was a part of the created order before the fall. And that's important for us to think about because so often we think, well, Adam and Eve, sinned and they really messed it up and now we have to work no work is harder because of sin work is harder because of sin but we were called to work even before the fall you are to be about work you are to produce 
to be fruitful and multiply. You are to fill the earth with worshipers of God. You are to make disciples. There is always work to be about. And it does not mean when I say that, because again, we can go too far in that direction and we forget that we also need rest. God commands rest. God provides for rest. Even God himself to show that to us on the seventh day rested. But you are to be busy about work. And this is the apostolic teaching where he says, as we instructed you. He's saying, be ambitiously unambitious. Don't make a name for yourself in the world, but work and fulfill your obligation for brotherly love. And we'll get to uh, more about how those two things connect together in just a little bit. But what if you cannot work? There are still things that you can attend yourself to for the bettering of the church. Uh, set your minds to those things. Pray. Write notes of encouragement. You have spiritual gifts given for the edification of the church. Use them. 1 Peter 4.10 As each of you have received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's steward, as good stewards of God's varied grace. So tend yourselves to these things. Don't be idle busybodies that stirs up trouble among God's people. Stay far away from gossip and slander. So work. To what end? Well, Paul gives us an end in verse 12. He says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he says, have a quiet walk before those uh, outside of the church. Have a proper walk, right? That you may walk properly before outsiders. And it's reminiscent of even perhaps what Jesus says in, again, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? Let your light so shine that others may see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. Walk properly before outsiders that you might give glory to the Father who is in heaven. And all this entails right, that we will be engaging with the world around us. We are in the world, but we shouldn't be of the world. We are lights in this world. We are examples to the unbelieving world. Rightly has the world condemned the sort of Christianity that talks of love but fails to act in love, that speaks of holy living but embraces dark perversions, that commends Christ-likeness but creates hellions. Right? That is a right condemnation from our world to say you are hypocritical in your proclamation and how you fail to live out. Verse 7 of chapter 4 of, of our letter here, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Or how about 1 Peter 1, 14-16? 1 Peter 1, 14-16 as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, "Be you shall be holy for I am holy. 
or Romans 13, 13 through 14, Romans 13, 13 through 14, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Walk properly before outsiders. How you live matters, brothers and sisters. You are to testify to the world about who Christ is, and you are doing so by the way you live your life. And either you tell the world that Christ is Lord and Savior, or you tell the world by your actions you lie about Christ, and you say that he's a charlatan and a fraud. Understand that how you live testifies to others. You are testifying of something of Christ. So walk properly before outsiders. And so that's why he says, live quietly. Make it your ambition to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Don't be disruptive and divisive like those in the culture around you. Work with your own hands. Don't be a lazy layabout that you may walk properly before outsiders. And notice what he says there at the end of verse 12, and be dependent on no one. Why? It's an interesting question. Why does he say be dependent on no one? Is it because he's saying something like of the American independence that we have, that we in America, right, we don't want to be dependent on anyone, so we'll do whatever we can to uh, get ourselves where we need to be? Are we talking about this kind of American cultural idea of being independent? No. Why does he say, be dependent on no one? Well, we've already heard a hint to it. Ephesians 4.28 Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The reason for our independence, as it were, the reason we work is so that we can show brotherly love. We work so we can show brotherly love. Because if we are always in need, we can never meet needs. If we are always in need, We can never do the work of the ministry. Understand that our ministry is hampered when we idly sit by. So let us love in deed and truth and be ready to step in and assist our brothers and sisters in Christ. And don't misunderstand me. And don't misunderstand the scripture. It is not a sin to be in need. Circumstances and situations arise. Sometimes it's a season of life when we just find ourselves in need. So many things come weighing in and pressing in upon us at once. There may be sin, sinful reason for that, right? We may have sinned and so we've entered into this season. We may have been unwise and made unwise financial decisions and so have entered into this period of, of need. There is sinful, uh, sinful reasoning behind a slothful, lazy attitude that gets us into a, a situation of need. And indeed, even such laziness may be the opposite of brotherly love. 
And it may be evidence of selfishness if we expect other people to meet our needs. Because what Paul says here is be dependent on no one. And the reason for that is so that we can show, we can help others. We can show the world brotherly love. We can step in and meet needs where, where needs arise. And so Paul here calls, he calls the church to loving one another and working out that love for one another because that means a quiet and a loving walk. It means walking properly before the world, before a watching world. There are enough examples in our own world, in our own culture, where we see where people say one thing and do another. Right? The pandemic, of course, of all things, has evidenced some of that. Where you see people say, always wear a mask. Whenever you're in public, wear a mask. Don't make unnecessary trips. Don't, don't go out. And then you hear of like politicians, uh, opening up, uh, closed businesses so they can get their hair done and their nails done. Then you see, uh, pictures of people just walking, you know, the same politicians that say, never, never not wear a mask. Always wear a mask. And then you see them out in public and talking with their friends and they're not wearing a mask. And you go, what kind of hypocrisy is that, right? We, that's something we should expect from the world around us is a hypocrisy. But you, you are not called to hypocrisy. You are called to proper walking. You are called to a quiet life. You are called to brotherly love and to do so more and more. You, beloved of God, are called to this because this is God's will for you, your sanctification. And the question that you need to consider today is what that brotherly love will look like. What does brotherly love look like for you today, right now? How will you love those who are around you? How will you serve their needs, not merely your own? How will you look after their interests, not merely your own interests? How can you build them up? And there are these are some of the great questions that we always, as a church, need to be thinking about. Because we're commanded to. We're called to love one another. And it is something that we need to be considering for those outside of our particular fellowship, right? How are we, how will we love all of those who are called in Christ Jesus? How will we love our brothers and sisters in the next church over, in the next state over, in the next country over? We need to be thinking about these things. One of the applications of this brotherly love, as Paul gives it, is a quiet working with our own hands that we may not be dependent on anyone, but rather ready to meet the needs of those who are dependent, that we might take care of the widows and the orphans, as it says in James. And some of you, some of you, though, don't have this kind of brotherly love. It doesn't even enter into your thoughts. It doesn't enter into your minds. And you don't really understand it because you don't have any motivation to understand it because you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Because you've not been born again. You've not been regenerated. Because for some of you, all that I've said today is a strange thing. It seems foreign and strange. Why would I ever do that? Why would I care about someone other than myself? Why would I sacrifice my own goods for that of a stranger? Why would I seek the good of anyone else if I can, if I'm not getting something from it? That's, that's a bad investment. Indeed, why would the Son of God 
leave his throne in heaven to come to this place, to be born in a manger, to grow and to live and to die, why would Jesus Christ bear God's wrath for sins that are not his? Because that's the gospel, right? Because God loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Because Christ Jesus loves the Father and loves his own, he shed his blood and he took upon himself the curse that we all deserve to bear. And unless you repent, unless you turn from your sin, unless you turn to Christ, you will never know the extent of God's love. You will know his wrath. And you will know the fullness of his wrath on the day of judgment. You will know the divine displeasure of God for all of your evil ways. You will know that God's love does not override his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. His justice, which demands the punishment of sin. But as you yet draw breath, you today can know the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. If you confess your sin, if you plead to God for your forgiveness, you can be saved. You can know the love of God that is not just for others, but it is for you. You can know a brotherly love that transcends cultures, nations, and ages. And as you know God's love, birthed in you will be love for others. Trust in Christ today and then walk in brotherly love. Walk properly before outsiders. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Father, we are so grateful for the grace with which you have shown us. Father, we pray that you would forgive us of, of too often failing to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as we ought. Father, for being slow to love, but quick to consider our own advancement. Father, forgive us for our sins. And, and we pray, Lord God, for your Holy Spirit to convict us of those areas in which we are in sin in that. Father, that we would confess freely before you all that we have done wrong. That we might have forgiveness of our sins. And Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to come upon those who do not know you, that they would be convicted of their sinfulness, that they would understand your grace, and that they would confess their need for Christ. Even this very day, Father, do this work. Father, help us to honor you in all of our ways. Give us opportunity to, to work out brotherly love. And help us, Lord, to be quick to take, quick to do, quick to, to obey that love with which you have commanded us to love others. Oh, Father, we pray this to the praise of your glory and for the good of your people. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, amen.